Well, good morning, Gateway family. It's good to see you on this Palm Sunday morning as we begin what we often call Holy Week. Hope you'll be with us throughout this week for different things we have going on. We celebrate Palm Sunday today, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We'll gather again on Wednesday night just for our normal activities. We're going to finish up our study of how to understand the Bible. 24 hours of prayer that Dave, our chairman of deacons, was mentioning to you earlier. Chance just to really focus your heart on the Lord as we think about Easter. I hope you'll sign up for one of those 30-minute slots between 6 p.m. Thursday and 6 p.m. on Friday. And then come join us on Friday night at 7 o'clock here for our Easter Good Friday service. I'm excited about it. It's going to be, don't worry, I'm not preaching a 30-minute sermon that night. We're going to focus our hearts on the Lord. We'll have scripture readings. We'll have a brief devotional. We'll do communion. But mostly we're going to sing to the Lord about what happened on Good Friday. And so that'll be Friday night. And Sunday morning, you already heard, there is the Easter sunrise service at Grace at Bell Road. Then we come back here for our normal Sunday school and morning worship. And so I hope you'll be a part of all that as we focus our hearts and minds on this Easter week and what it is all about. Well, as we get to Palm Sunday, Jesus' triumphal entry, we're going to think about that this morning as we continue through the Gospel of John. And so we're going to be going this morning to John chapter 12. So don't worry if you've been with us for a while. We're not doing a time warp. I've not skipped eight chapters of John. Don't worry coming back to those over the next about four months. But so we're skipping ahead this morning, continuing through John, but to look at the triumphal entry, the, what we celebrate as Palm Sunday. Now, as you're finding it, just let me remind us that, that John the Apostle wrote this book. And he wrote this book in its entirety from beginning to end to be a flow of thought, to be an argument to help us understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him we might have life in his name. And so John is trying to make that case for us. So even what we see today in the story of the triumphal entry that begins Holy Week, John is making his case for us that Jesus is in fact the Christ. And we will see that once again. As we come to John chapter 12 and we look at it, when we look at the triumphal entry, we look at Palm Sunday, we see in other Gospels as well, but John tells us things that we wouldn't know, or we wouldn't even be able to know if we didn't have his, his particular account of it. Only in John do we find the palm branches. So the fact that we begin the source of the kids walking through with palm branches, and there's palm branches on the, the screen, the reason for that is because John records that detail for us. It's only in John that we find the, the lack of understanding of the disciples of what was going on on that Sunday. Only in John do we see the response of the Pharisees. So much of how we celebrate Palm Sunday traditionally, we owe to the gospel of John here. Now, before we get to our text, I want to ask us just a question to think about. And that's when you think about the triumphal entry. When you think about Palm Sunday and the waving of the palm branches and the people singing Hosanna to Jesus, do we tend to think about them in a favorable way or an unfavorable way? Again, the whole book is about belief. Do we look on them as people who are believing or not believing? Because that's going to affect our understanding of what's happening here. Are they a model for us, or do we have some skepticism of what's really going on here? And as we get to John 12, I have a main point for us, and I believe the text shows. And so this morning, our main point and our application are really one and the same thing. It's this. Celebrate Jesus as for the Savior he really is, not the Savior we want him to be. We need to celebrate Jesus for the Savior he really is, not the Savior we want him to be. And as we look at this account from John 12 of the triumphal entry, I want you to keep that in mind. Because we're going to see not just one crowd, but several different groups in the crowd who are gathered together on this day that we call Palm Sunday. And the question for us that we read is, do they believe? Do they embrace Jesus for who he claims to be, for who he is? Or have they in their minds made up an image of what the Savior is to be like? And is that who they are excited about? So the question is, do they believe? So as we come to John chapter 12, could I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading 
of the Word of God. And we'll be in John chapter 12. We're starting verse 12. We're going to go a little bit longer text. We're going to go through verse 38. Don't worry, I'm not going to explain every verse of the passage. We're going to look at the big picture of it today. But John chapter 12, starting in verse 12, and I'm reading from the ESV. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Verse 17, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world is going after him. Verse 20, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, my, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you as we approach this holy week. There's so much for us to celebrate, so much for us to think about today and in the days to come. And God, I pray as we go through Palm Sunday today, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, over this next week, that God, these things would not be routine for us. And if we've heard these stories since our childhood, God, I pray that you might give us fresh eyes to see your word today and all throughout this week. That God, we would really marvel at what you've done for us that we will marvel at what we're celebrating on this holiday week ahead. Lord, I pray even this morning as we look at Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry, that you might stir our hearts to better understand who you are, what, what Jesus, what you came to do, and what it means to celebrate you for who you are. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. And you may be seated. Again, the main idea I want to see in this text is celebrate Jesus for the Savior he really is, not the Savior we want him to be. So we're going to kind of take that in two parts. First, I want us to look at how the crowd was celebrating Jesus for the Savior they wanted him to be, not who he was, but the Savior they wanted him to be, because the crowd has a lot of excitement. There's a lot of stirring going on here. And so let's go back to verses 12 and 13 of John 12. 
The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So why do they use palm branches? What's the significance of that? Why do we even see this on Palm Sunday? Well, palm branches were used in a feast, but not the Passover. This is the Passover feast we have coming up here. But palm branches are not part of that. The palm branches are part of the Feast of Tabernacles back in Leviticus 23. But why, why palm branches now? Well, palm branches were the Jewish national symbol. They were almost like a patriotic symbol for them. And the best way I can try to give us an analogy, I would imagine that we're in a wartime and our troops have come home from war and there's a big parade through downtown Montgomery to honor our troops who've just returned. What are you going to imagine everyone's going to be doing? They're going to be sitting on the curb where there are American flags, waving their American flags, our national symbol. That's almost the imagery you need here as Jesus right in Jerusalem and they're waving palm branches. It was a Jewish national symbol. We know from extra-biblical sources that they used palm branches when the temple was dedicated, rededicated. They used palm branches when the Jews received political independence to celebrate it. They used palm branches even on the coins. Back in the times when there was a revolt against the Romans and trying to get out of under-Roman occupation, the, revol- the Jewish revolutionaries would print palm branches on their coins as a sign of their independence from Rome. It was their national symbol. So as they're waving palm branches to Jesus, they are in a sense confessing a particular ideology they have of Jesus, and that is of a political king. Notice also what they said here, verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Well, what they're doing is they're quoting from Psalm 118. Psalm 118, it just says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. Which, by the way, Hosanna means save us. Hosanna is just a transliteration, not a translation. So when we get to the Psalms, they actually translate it as save us. When we get to the New Testament, they just transliterate and call it Hosanna. But it's the same word there. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So they're quoting from Psalm 118 here. Save us, O Lord. Bless is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're saying, Hosanna, save us. Give us victory now. Grant us salvation. And when they say, blessed is he who comes, this is like a Jewish idiom to welcome someone. It would be like, let's say someone moves here from Orlando. If we were back in this time, we'd be like, blessed is the one who came from Orlando to Gateway. You know, that's just their cultural idiom way of greeting someone and welcoming someone at the time. So they're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they added something that was not in Psalm 118. When they're quoting Psalm 118, they quote it, but then they add something. The king, even the king of Israel, they add that part to it. They are expecting Jesus to be a political king, a political savior. Remember, they're controlled by the Roman Empire. The people want deliverance from being occupied by the Romans. They want Jesus to use his supernatural skills they've seen. He's just raised Lazarus from the dead. They want to use this type of power to wipe out the Romans and give them independence. They're celebrating a savior of their own imagination. They're not celebrating Jesus for what he was actually coming to do. Well, we see another group in the crowd as well. So look down to verse 17 and 18, because it's not just one unitary crowd here. There's several groups present. So look at verse 17 and 18. The crowd that had been with him, Jesus, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So this other part of the crowd has come from Bethany, where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus had lived. This is the crowd that saw Jesus take a man who had been dead for several days, open the tomb. The people are like, but he's going to stink. They open the tomb anyway, and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And the man wrapped in grave clothes walks out. they just seen this. It creates a stir. It creates a buzz. And so the people start bearing witness. Did you know Jesus raised this dead guy? He'd been in the tomb three days. He came out alive. 
And so word begins to spread, and so a crowd out of curiosity of the miracle worker shows up again. If you remember back from John 3, we talked about one whole morning, about how curiosity and belief are not one and the same thing. It's totally different to be curious about Jesus and his miracles versus actually believing in him. And so here you have a group celebrating the fact that Jesus is a miracle worker. They still are not celebrating what Jesus actually came to do. And so at this point, you have the triumphal entry crowd. You have the crowd from Bethany, and the crowd kind of merges together. And we see in several places here, this crowd that is so excited about Jesus is really spiritually blind. They may be excited, they may be celebrating, but yet they're spiritually blind. I want you to see that in several places. Look down to verse 27 now of John chapter 12. Jesus begins, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. So... There's context there. Jesus is not trying to get out of what he's about to do. And his humanity here, he knows the pain he's about to endure on the cross. And he prays, but then he comes back to, for this purpose I have come to this hour. This hour means the time when this is going to all take place. Now verse 28. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it. Again, for this is only one of three times that there's a voice from God the Father in heaven attesting to who Jesus is. And it's an audible voice that the people can hear. The people around who come to celebrate Jesus can hear this voice. Now look at verse 29 and 30 as they try to explain what they've just heard. They've heard the voice of God the Father attesting to Jesus, and here's their explanation, verse 29. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had just thundered. And then the others said, an angel spoke to him. Friends, the people here who have just waved palm branches and celebrated, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the morning. Here's the king of Israel. When the Father speaks of who Jesus is, they are so spiritually blind, they can't get it. They heard a voice, and yet some thought, well, maybe it was just thunder. And others thought, well, maybe it's an angel speaking. They heard the voice of God and missed it. You see their confusion again later in verse 32. Jesus is speaking. He says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Verse 33, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So he explains to them what's about to happen, that he's about to die. And they respond in verse 34. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? They start challenging Jesus. In fact, we miss it here, but in the Greek, the I and the you here of verse 34 are emphatic. They're stressing it, like we saw last week where Jesus used that kind of tense. This is almost how it should read if you read it with emphatic. So the crowd answered him, We've heard that the law, that we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? These people who just celebrated him now are now distancing themselves from him because they cannot fathom how their Messiah of their imagination would ever die. He's supposed to live forever. They have in their mind what the Savior should be. And so when he's standing there in front of them because he's different than they had imagined, they're blind and cannot even believe. And in case we miss it, John makes it very plain for us. Verse 37. Though he, Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Friends, these are the people who were celebrating Jesus. After they celebrate the wave of the palm branches, they're all excited, Hosanna, here he comes. Jesus explains to them, the Savior is standing before them, explaining to them what must happen, that he was coming to die. He explains to them, but they don't believe. A voice from heaven comes. God the Father speaks and says, this is Jesus. And the people still don't believe. He does signs and miracles here. I love the way that John describes it for us. He had done so many signs, and yet they still do not believe. He'd even just raised Lazarus from the dead, and they still do not believe. They're curious, they celebrate, but yet they're spiritually 
blind on that. And friends, what a reminder to us that excitement and curiosity, emotional responses, do not lead to belief necessarily. They were celebrating the Savior they wanted, not who Jesus was. But friends, is it really that different today? Do you think about people you know who claim to be followers of Christ, but yet they're following Jesus because of some hope of earthly blessing, some, some hope of prosperity, that if I just follow Jesus, I'll be wealthy and healthy and all these problems, some hope of following Jesus because they need the help of the church or following Jesus because they're lonely and so maybe the church can fix their problems. I mean, we hear it even as you, let's talk to people on the streets, talk to people who are, who would again name the name of Christ. They're following a Jesus who lets them do whatever they want to do. A Jesus who gives them everything but demands absolutely nothing. So many in our culture who claim to follow Jesus are claiming to follow a Jesus that they've imagined who demands nothing from them, who loves everyone, who judges absolutely no one, doesn't call you to sacrifice anything, lets you pick and choose what parts you want to obey, lets you come as you are and stay as you are, and it's all okay. And that's a Jesus a lot follow in the American culture. But then and now, a Jesus that we get excited about that we've invented is not who he really is, and that's very different than belief. When I think about the crowds here, and I think about even kind of that segment of our culture here in the U.S., I can't help but think about Matthew chapter 7. It's a context of, of false prophets coming, but it has application for this. Jesus speaks to them in Matthew seven seventeen. He says, Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. And this is some of the most sobering words in all, all the Bible to me. Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do so many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Friends, I think that's a very fitting description of Matthew 7 and what happened on the triumphal entry. These crowds are standing there celebrating. Hosanna, blesses you, comes in the name of the Lord. But they don't believe. They're the ones who, Matthew 7, will one day stand before Jesus. And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. Because they were worshiping a Jesus they've invented, not Jesus for who he really is. Well, let's turn to the positive. Who is, how do we celebrate Jesus for who he is? What does the text show us? Well, all of John has been showing us who Jesus is. We've been saying that we've got a lot more to see in the months to come of who Jesus is. But what do we see in this particular text of the Savior he really is? What did he really come to do? So back in John 12, look at verses 14 and 15 again. Verse 14, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So again, the people are singing Hosanna. They're excited. The king is coming. And what does Jesus do? He sits on a donkey to ride in. Well, why do he sit on a donkey? Two reasons. One, to fulfill prophecy. This is what was supposed to happen. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 is what we're quoted. You see kind of separated there in your text in verse 15 is a quote from. This is what had been prophesied would happen. So he was doing it to fulfill what was supposed to happen. But more importantly, I think Jesus is making a point riding in on the donkey. Think about this for a minute. When, even then, as today, if a commander of a military is going to come in, he's going to come in riding on a horse, some type of stallion, something that conveys authority and power on this. How many military parades have you been to where the commanding general you're celebrating and waving your flags for comes down the street on a donkey? I mean, like, can you imagine if, again, we've been at war and everyone's sitting on the side of the street downtown waving their American flags, celebrating the soldiers coming, right? The general who led the battle to victory is coming. And you look and you look and all of a sudden you see Claude, 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 and a, little, and a donkey stopping, get a little grass on the side of it, start chewing it, grass hanging out of his mouth, he just kind of plods down the street real slowly. 
And that's not the symbol of authority generals want. They're going to come in on the fastest horse or on the biggest tank, you know, to, to show their, their power and all that. Jesus is making a point here. He's riding an animal that military generals would not ride on. He's riding on an animal that priests would ride on or maybe a merchant or maybe someone trying to make a point about peace. He doesn't come in on an animal of war. He's showing them in the midst of their celebration. Even as they're waving palm branches on the donkey, he's using a symbol to show them, I am not coming in to do what you think I'm coming in to do. He's the king who did not come to establish a political kingdom, but to establish a spiritual kingdom. He's coming not to rescue them from, from Roman bondage. He's coming to rescue them from the power of sin in their life and the bondage to sin they're under. He's coming to make them a people of God. But what else do we learn about what Jesus is doing here? It's not just for them. He's coming to do this for all people. I want you to see this because this is an important part of who Jesus is and what he comes to do. Look in verse 19. I love the indictment of the Pharisees here in verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that we are, you're gaining nothing. In other words, they're saying like all of our attempts to stop him are not working. We are failing here. But then they go and say this, look, the world is going after him. I mean, it's a point of exasperation for them, but yet a point that shows us what Jesus came to do. Literally, the nations are following him. Like, literally, people from all different backgrounds are running after Jesus. We just saw that last week. If you go back eight chapters in John chapter 4, we saw the Samaritans believe. And I used the phrase last week that the pagan nations are flocking into the kingdom. And that is very much what's happening here. And the, the Pharisees are very, very unhappy about it. But Jesus came for the whole world. We see that later in this text as well, verse 20 and 21. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who is from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So here you have, right before the Pharisees, these Greeks coming because they are seeking Jesus as well. But Jesus tells us as well, he's here for all people. Look down at verse 32. He says, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This is not universalism that everyone on the planet is going to be drawn and be okay. This is all types of people. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek, rich or poor. It doesn't matter your background. This is for all, the message is for all people. That the hope of spiritual freedom of being a people of God is for all types of people. But this is what we get to our Easter week here. For that to be available requires something really, really costly. And that's what Jesus is telling them here in verses 23 and 24. Verse 23, Jesus answered them, The hour has come, that means the time has come, for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls in the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's telling them, listen up. For me to offer this to you, for me to give you freedom from your sin, for me to give you salvation, it's going to require me falling like a grain of wheat. It's going to fall me dying here for you. But notice his death is not a death of defeat here. Verse 23 here the hours come for the Son of Man to be glorified. His death is described in terms of being glorified. In verse 24, he ends with saying, it bears much fruit. Friends, his death is a death of glorification. His death is a death of bearing much fruit. His death is not a death of defeat. It's a death of triumph that brings hope to the nations that they can have their sins forgiven. And friends, that brings hope to us. But that leads to one more thing Jesus shows us here about the type of Savior he is. If we want to celebrate him for who he is, not who we imagine, there's one more thing really, really, really important in this text. And that is Jesus as Savior requires things of us as well. Again, we, we're in a culture who wants a Jesus who gives everything but requires nothing. And that is a Jesus of an, our imagination. So verses 24 through 26, see what Jesus requires of people. And now, verse 24 is him talking about himself. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls in the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So the context here is Jesus talking about the suffering that he is about to endure, the death 
he's about to endure to bring salvation. But he turns it in verse 25 to talk about what's required of his followers. Verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now we hear love and hate. If you were with me on Wednesday night two weeks ago, we talked about figurative language in the Bible. And love, when you see this love-hate relationship, it means you love one thing more than others. And when we think of hate, we think of anger and outrage. And that's not what this is conveying. It's conveying what's most important. What do you love the most here? And it's saying if what you love the most is this life and the things of this world, your material possessions, your health, all the stuff we get obsessed with here, you're going to miss eternal life. But if you love that more, if you love God more, so much so that your things you fo- that we do here almost seem like you hate it, not because you hate it, but because you love eternity and you love God so much more, you gain eternal life. So he's trying to give us that contrast. Friends, basically the way I would describe this is Jesus did not die to get us from birth to death in the safest, happiest, easiest, most comfortable way possible. But yeah, that's what our culture obsesses about. Jesus did not die to get us from birth to death in the safest, easiest, happiest, most comfortable way possible. Verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus died to free us from that selfish perspective. Jesus died to free us from living for the things of this world. He died to free us from living for self, living for material things, living for only this now. He died to give us an eternal perspective. And if that doesn't make us uncomfortable, he continues in verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So for a servant to follow his master means the servant shares in the experiences of the master. And Jesus is about to enter a period of suffering. This whole Holy Week is the suffering, the passion of the Christ. And so he's saying, if you want to follow me, you have to be willing to suffer for me also. It's losing one's life for Jesus, embracing whatever path he has for us. And friends, the Coptic Christians we prayed for this morning who got bombed, they experienced that very real, very firsthand this morning in Egypt. Yet in our culture where we have such relatively safety, we read that and that seems foreign to us. We just want to dream our big dreams and get Jesus to bless them. We want to desire to have all of our trials and sufferings go away. And if we just pray hard enough, surely that will happen. But that's not what he says. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. Where is he going? He's going to suffering for the sake of what he came to do. But one last thing here, if we want to celebrate Jesus for who he is, not who we imagine... Like I think I tell you almost every week, I think I sound like a broken record here, but John calls for a response. Every time we see writings in the Gospel of John, it's not just for some nice intellectual things, like, oh, that's really cool, that's who Jesus is. The Gospel of John demands a response. Jesus demands a response today as well that John records for us. Look at verses 35 and 36. Jesus responds to them after they kind of question about how he could really die. Verse 35, so Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Friends, the people are so blind. Jesus, who they thought they were celebrating, is standing right there. The light, back to John 1, is right there among them, and they can't even see the light as he stands right in front of them. And he's calling them to the urgency of action, the urgency of doing something before it is too late because the day is coming When it is too late, he's just given them revelation of who he is, and they've got to respond to it. They have to make a decision now. Verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Now, friends, verse 36 is so important. I want us to read it out loud together. So you got up on the screen. Can you say it with me? While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. 
When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Now, we could do a whole sermon on this, this, this one verse. Don't worry, I'm not going to keep you here till 1 o'clock to do a whole sermon on this verse. Maybe another day we can unpack this some more. Two key words here that we've got to understand. This is the words believe and become. In verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light. Some translations say put your trust in the light. Now, friends, this is a present tense verb. This means to believe and to keep on to believing and to keep on believing and to keep on believing and to keep on believing. This means that following Christ is not a one-time believe in him so you don't go to hell and then live like you want the rest of your life. This is a belief that lasts with you till the day you see him face to face. This is a belief that you believe and keep on believing and keep on believing and keep on believing and keep on believing. This is ongoing belief and ongoing belief, friends, changes us. If we believe and keep on believing like it describes here, we'll live out verses 25 and 26 of not loving our life here so we don't lose it, but gaining eternal life. If we really believe and keep on believing, we'll live out verse 26 of following him wherever he goes. So we believe that's ongoing. But notice the other word here is we may become sons of light. What's so interesting is the contrast of the word she's used. Because become is, if you want your tense, is an aorist tense. That means it's a once and for all completed action. Not something that keeps going. Friends, when we believe initially, God in his kindness pronounces upon us, we are now sons of light. This is not something that we're becoming. It's not I'm working to become a son of light. I'm working harder and striving harder so that God will approve of me and welcome me. This is you believe and God will welcome you. God makes you. You become at that point in time a son of light. But then as we keep on believing, we grow more and more into that. This whole expression son of is an idiom in the Jewish culture that means to be characterized by that quality. So to be a son of light doesn't just mean I've believed I'm not going to hell. To be a son of light means I've believed and I'm still believing. And God has not only pronounced me to be in him, to be a son of light, but my character is now beginning to reflect that of which I am. And that is I'm, my character is beginning to reflect that of his life or his light because it changes us, friends. We believe he changes us, but that belief, if it's genuine, will keep going and our lives will begin to reflect that of which he has called us to be on that. So that leads back to our main point and to our question for us. We need to celebrate Jesus for the Savior he really is, not for the Savior that we want him to be. And so friends, as we come into this Easter season, as you think about what excites you as you think about the Easter story, are we celebrating Jesus because we believe him to be the light? Are we celebrating Jesus because we believe him to be the Savior, not just for us, but the Savior of the world? Are we celebrating Jesus because we believe he's come to free us, not just, from the, not just to free us from the penalty of sin, but to free us from the power of sin in our life? Are we looking to Jesus and celebrating the fact that he is doing those things, or are we looking to Jesus because we want some blessing of this life and ease of life or whatever it may be? Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness doesn't know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Friends, is your celebration of Jesus, Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday, Sunday by Sunday, is your celebration of Jesus on Friday night with your friends or family, Monday morning at the workplace, is it one to where you believe and your belief is continuing? And is it such that you are becoming sons of light, that your character is beginning to reflect that of him who has saved you and pronounced you to be that? Would you let me pray for us? Lord Jesus, I am thankful that you have revealed yourself to us. And Father, what a challenge you've given us in your word when you tell us to, while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. 
Father, I pray you forgive me, you forgive each one of us for the times in our life where we have imagined you to be something very different than you really are. It's happened to all of us. We follow something in our culture, we follow something our minds have made up, but Lord, you are who you have revealed yourself to be. And God, I'm thankful this day that you are unchanging. God, that you didn't wake up this morning and be in a good mood or a bad mood or decide you're going to follow these promises or not. God, I'm thankful that you never changed. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so when we look at your word and you tell us that you, are going to be, that you were lifted up to draw all men to yourself, that promise holds true today just as much as it did then. When you call to the people back then to not walk in the darkness but to walk in the light, that's just as much your will and your character now as it was then. And Father, I pray that we would rejoice in that fact that you do not change. But Lord, I pray for myself and these precious brothers and sisters this Easter season that, God, if there's any areas to where we are imagining you to be different than you really are, God, would you give us grace to show us that? God, we don't want to go through life following a God that we've imagined or invented or taken truth but changed a little bit to fit our, our preferences. Lord Jesus, we want to see you for who you really are, and we want to know all that you require of us as well. And so, God, we ask for grace upon grace because we cannot manufacture that on our own. Holy Spirit, would you fill us? Those of us who are your children, would you fill us and would you show us? Would you remind us that we are sons of light? Would you, even right now, in the hearts of those who are your children here in this room, would you just confirm for them their belief in you and that you've pronounced them to be sons of light? Would you let them see how you are growing them and how their character is being sanctified and they're becoming more and more a son of light as, in a sense, as their character reflects who you've already pronounced them to be. And Lord, as we go throughout this whole Easter week, this holy week, God, would you remind us of the incredible sacrifice the Lord Jesus made on the cross that we might be forgiven, that we might be able to call you our Father, that we might be free, not just to not go to hell, but free to experience eternal life, abundant life right now today. And God, would you let our hearts be full of wonder all this week? But would you let our hearts also be full of a longing to know you more? God, we can, we'll spend all of eternity seeing you with unveiled faces and still not cease to discover everyday new things about you. Because you're that great, that big, that mighty, that majestic. God, even this Easter week, would you begin to do that in our hearts? Maybe not wait, just wait for eternity to discover new things about you. God, this week, would you begin to, through your word and the Holy Spirit applying your word, would you show us depths of you and your glory and your majesty that we even perhaps our whole life missed? And as that happens, I pray we'd worship you and we celebrate you for who you really are. We ask it, Lord, for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song?